what God had laid on my heart is building upon what Tim had begun to share last Sunday uh, with regard to the family of God in Acts chapter 2. So clearly the Lord knows what he's doing um, as he directs the hearts of his servants to share God's word with you all. So building on, on what Tim talked about last week, I, what I want to do um, is something that I, always, I don't always get to do, but I wanted to sort of give uh, some perspective on walking into a new year, 2017, and what that means for us as followers of Christ and what that means for us as a church body. So the Lord laid on my heart about four biblical goals that we should each have for ourselves going into this new year. Now, it's not the... New Year is, is like the New Year holiday is like one of my least favorite holidays because the, the Bible's pretty, everybody talks about, you know, well, New Year, new resolutions, New Year, new slate, clean, and all that sort of stuff. And to me, I wake up every day in Christ and I have, I have new resolutions and I have a new clean slate and new mercies. Um, but the turn of the calendar is for a lot of people an opportunity to begin to revisit what is most important to them and how to live that out. So that's what I want to talk about this morning. Biblically speaking, and with regard to us as a church, what does that mean for us going forward? Because a quote I read by C.S. Lewis this week, he said this, he said, the church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ, to make them little Christ. If they are not doing that, everything else is simply a waste of time. God became man for no other purpose. So the question this morning is this, as a church, how are we doing at that? I mean, do we really exist to draw men and women and boys and girls into Christ and to see them grow in Christ and to see ourselves grow in Christ? Are we His body meeting our mission? And these four goals will help to ensure that we're doing exactly that. So let's revisit again Acts chapter 2. The early church comes along, Peter preaches at Pentecost, and boom, just like that, you have a church. And that's where we want to pick up. Acts chapter 2, verse 37. This will be our jumping off text for this morning. Peter preaches at Pentecost. He tells the truth of, of salvation, and it says in verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent to be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And with many other words He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation." So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So what is God calling us 
to prioritize as a church because the early church, once they heard the saving message, quickly folded into this mission mindset, this this church mode. And I hope these four goals this morning help us to clarify that. If you walk away with anything today, the big takeaway is this. I want you to be able to strategize this coming year and what it means for you as a Christian. So goal number one. The first goal of a Christian in the year 2017 needs to be this. To know Him better and to live it out. To know Christ better and live it out. Like many of you, I've been told on many occasions that you are the books you read and the company you keep. You ever heard that phrase before, that saying? You are the books you read and the company you keep. And it's no different for us. I've taken that to heart as an adult. So I pay very close attention to the people that I model my life after and the people I rub shoulders with and the books that I read. But how do we do this in regards to Jesus? If if we're to know Him better and to live it out, if we're to know Him, rub shoulders with Him better, and we're to ingest Him more, what does that look like? Well, the first is this. We need to, this is not rocket science, by the way, we need to spend more time, more time getting into the Word of God. I don't know what your plan is for 2017. I I take the turn of the calendar as an opportunity to revisit goals, to revisit life strategy, to revisit what my objectives are, not just for 2017, but for the next three years and five years. It prompts discussions that I want to have with my family, with my wife, the way we want to prioritize our budget, the way we want to handle our finances, the way we want to manage our time and our calendar, and the way we want to um, invest in our children and in our church. We visit all these things around the turn of the calendar. Even this morning driving to church, we're having a conversation about, you know, goals that I have professionally, goals that I have with regard to my education and how we can make those things happen while paying for this, that, and the next thing. Um, So spending more time getting into the Word of God, for the early church, what this meant was focusing, it said here in Acts chapter 2, focusing on the apostles' teaching. They were born again, 3,000 added to their number that day, and immediately they began to pour themselves into that which the apostles were teaching. And you say, well, what does that have to do with what we read today? Well, who do you think wrote this? I mean, yes, God's the author, but God used his apostles, God used those men of faith to author this thing. So when they sat there and they listened to the apostles' teachings, what they were hearing was this. It just wasn't in a bound, written format yet. But they were seeking opportunities to always get into the teachings of Christ, the teachings of God, the words that God was revealing to His apostles. Because the apostles carried this authoritative Word of God within them. Everything that they taught pointed to Christ. Everything that the apostles taught clarified the Old Testament Scriptures that pointed to Christ. Eyes were being opened. Dr. Uh, Eric Geiger is a a pastor and a research expert on church discipleship. He's written a lot of books and blogs and articles about uh, making disciples, being disciples, churches that make disciples. He wrote one of my favorite books, which is called Simple Church. Um, And in that is the, the premise that the church has sort of busied itself with a lot of stuff 
and gotten away from simply being the church that makes disciples. Um, we become the church that starts schools. We become the church that um, funds uh, para-ministries. Uh, but really, we have gotten away from simply being the church that makes disciples. Well, in a recent article, he said this about his research in the church that makes disciples. He said, reading the Bible, reading the Bible is the number one predictor for spiritual growth. Number one, people who read the Bible are people who are going to grow spiritually. Quite simply, he said, those who read the scripture grow. Some spiritual disciplines do not impact all the others. As an example, someone who serves may not be generous in giving. But engagement in the Word of God impacts every other discipline. Someone who lets the Word dwell in them simultaneously gives, serves, confesses sin, shares the Gospel, and on and on and on and on. So if you want to know the best indicator of whether we are growing as disciples, whether we are doing what we're supposed to do, we are people of the Word. We are people who ingest the Word, read it on a regular basis. The turn of the calendar meant something different for me. It meant that um, on December 31st, I was uh, finishing up reading 1 John, and starting January 1st, I began reading Genesis 1. And uh, so now I'm on this journey for this entire year, 2017, to get through, read through the entire Bible. This will be the tenth time I've done it. And then next year we'll go back to focusing on specific books and pulling it apart. That's my plan. My plan doesn't have to be your plan. But the question is, what plan do you have to get more of God's Word into you? Because this seemed to be something that was just instinctive to the new church. If they were going to be who God had called them to be, if they were going to be faithful disciples of Christ, if they were going to be small Christ, little Christ, they were going to be all up in the business of learning the apostles' teachings. Paul affirmed this in 2 Timothy 3, one of my favorite passages. He tells Timothy and the church, he says this, but as for you... Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Isn't that in keeping sort of with what Dr. Geiger said? He said, some spiritual disciplines don't necessarily impact or enhance other spiritual disciplines. But those people who read the Word of God in turn see all their disciplines and their whole entire life changed as a result. You read the Bible according to 2 Timothy 3 here. Paul says if you read the Scriptures, I mean you study it, you take it for what it is, the Word of God, you will see change in your life. You'll be, you'll be uh, rebuked, you'll be corrected, you'll be taught, you'll be made effective for doing even more work for God. But it's not going to happen if this just remains something that you touch one day a week. Or maybe not even that. Maybe you don't even touch it one day a week. Maybe it just collects dust until an opportune time when you're sort of forced to open it up. But in our home, there are 
two Bibles that sit on the same um, the same stand in our living room. And, and every morning, I mean, Mindy wakes up and she grabs her Bible and her journal and she begins to read. And, and I wake up and I grab my Bible and my journal and I begin to read. And that's a daily activity. I mean, it just sort of never changes because I wake up and I want to get more of God's Word into me. But it has to be something that you put in place and you prioritize. So, the first way we make goal number one happen, which is to know and better and live it out, is to spend time getting into God's Word. But the second thing I put here is that you have to actually ingest and practice that which is profitable for God. You have to ingest and practice that which is profitable for God. There have been many times when we've had to tell our children, I know that almost everyone else in the world is doing this or that that you want to do, but as followers of Christ, we shouldn't and we will not. And we just leave it at that. But there's just some stuff that we're not going to do. And, and at the risk of sort of putting them on the spot, like Christmas has been a, a prime example of having this conversation. Um, uh, ben saved up a bunch of money through working to buy a Xbox One. We've never been video gamers, but he wanted to get Xbox One, and, and it came with a game preloaded on it. And it was uh, this game Battlefront One or Battlefield One or something like that. And we didn't, you know, dismiss it right away. We took a look at it. We wanted to see. We let him play. Uh, and, and what we realized was it was reenacting of World War One and Civil War and World War Two battles. And it was one of these active shooter games where, you know, you, you have and, and your job is to go around and kill as many people as possible. So all his buddies are playing this game. He's got buddies at Christian school that are playing this game. And we said, no, we're not going to play this game in our home. Because it's not, it's not profitable. It's, do we really want to be the people that ingest the visual of killing other people, even if it's on a television screen? That's not who we're called to be as Christians. That's not what we're going to ingest. Now, as a parent, he had saved up his money. He knew that a game came loaded. You know, he wanted to play it right away. So as a parent, we just decided, all right, yeah, we're going to lay this out. No, you can't do that. And he was okay with that. He understood it. So what do we do as a parent? Come on, let's go shopping. We'll find, let's go together. We'll find a game that's more pleasing. So now I'm sucked into playing Madden Football 2017 all the time. <laughs> um, so not only is our witness affected by what we allow to enter our minds and our hearts, but sin is either given a foothold or we become callous to it. That's the danger. If you allow these things to begin to come permeate your mind and your heart, um, they either foster sin in your life, or just as scary, you become callous to sin in your life. And we don't want to be either of those things. We want to be aware of sin so that we can call sin what it is and take a stand for righteousness. Paul gave us a different objective in Philippians 4, verses 8 and 9. He said this, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, 
Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. See, what he's not saying here is this. Don't enjoy life, Christian. Don't laugh. Don't have fun. He's not saying don't promote a sense of humor. He's not saying live your life miserably as a Christian and just hate your existence. What he's saying is that our default should be things that honor Christ. Our default should be things that bring recognition and praise and glory to God. Things that promote personal holiness so that those on the outside see what we believe in and what we stand for. Because I think one of the greatest struggles that the church, in the early church, they didn't seem to have a problem with this. What we're beginning to struggle with as a church today is that people don't know the difference between those people who live for Christ and those people who don't. We're so afraid of standing out and making people feel bad about their lifestyle choices. So, we just sort of either cower or pretend that we don't believe these things. And, and the reality is, like, they're gonna, like an example is a personal shooter game. I mean, here's a, a young man who's gonna have to go to school, a Christian school. And his friends are going to say, hey, why don't you play this game? Or why don't you get your headset on and, and play this, that, or the next thing? And now a 14, 15-year-old is going to have to tell his buddies, that's not what I'm about. It's not what we're going to do. Sorry. But sometimes, you know what? It's okay to look different from the world around us. We ingest the stuff that honors Christ. He would say later in 1 Timothy 4, um, he told the church this, stay clear of silly stories that get dressed up as religion. Exercise daily in God, no spiritual flabbiness, please. Workouts in the gymnasium are useful, but a disciplined life in God is far more so, making you fit both today and forever. Now obviously that's a paraphrase but it drives home the point. I love that. No spiritual flabbiness, please. No slackers in God's gym. We show up here, we work out. In your daily lives, you work out with the things that matter. You prioritize the things that matter. Lastly, on this goal of knowing Him better and living it out, I would just say this. Um, It's important that we reflect God's goodness and holiness to the world around us. Reflect God's goodness and holiness. In keeping with the previous point, what we ingest and practice elicits a message to the rest of the world. We're to be shining lights in the world. We're to be salt in the world, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Not tasteless salt that's trampled underneath men, thrown out in the road and When a salt would lose its saltiness, when it became useless, it would be thrown into the street and it would be, it would become, uh, road waste that horses and men would trample over. 
when we choose to dumb down our witness for Christ so that we become less offensive to people or that we stand out less, we're as useful as road waste. Second goal is this. So goal one was to know him better and to live it out. And second goal is this. Share the good news personally. Share the good news personally. Geiger went on in his summation of discipleship research to share this telling truth. Quote, Disciples share the gospel. Those who are growing in Christ tell others about him. Those who are not growing in their faith are much less likely to articulate the gospel. People that are growing in Christ share Jesus Christ. People who are growing with Christ understand the necessity of seeing other people accept Jesus Christ for their salvation. Those who are stagnant in their relationship with Christ and in their growth as a disciple are not interested in talking about the things of Jesus with other people. I can't really argue this point. It just... It seems to be in keeping with everything that Jesus talked about. If we're a church of people who are really growing in Christ, we're going to share Christ. We're going to share the good news of the Gospel. And not like, I go to a church where that guy up there shares the Gospel. That's not what I'm saying. We, as a church, leave this place and share the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. The early church, they they seemed to to get this. I mean, Peter shared the gospel. People were baptized. They went public with their profession of faith. They, they, they taught and they shared publicly. Simply put, a, a person deeply moved by what Christ has done for them is constantly seeking opportunities to personally get other people saved. That's one of my goals this year. I think I only led two people to Christ this past year. And that was not satisfactory for me. And a lot of it has to do with not creating enough personal opportunities outside the walls of this silly building to go do it. So, with your permission, what that means for me as a pastor is I could come here and lock myself in this building and study and email and phone call all week long. But that hinders me from actually doing that which Christ has called me to do on a personal level, which is to share Jesus. So one of my goals this year is to carve out more time where I'm not here, but maybe in places where lost people hang out so I can get to know people more regularly. Maybe it's going to mean having breakfast or lunch at the same diner the same day every week so I can get to know the staff. Or maybe going to the same Starbucks the same afternoon while I do some reading and preparation or whatever. And I would encourage you to do the same thing. Think strategically about your life. How can you get the gospel into other people more effectively? And the the common pushback for all of us is, I'm just not good at that kind of stuff. You know, that's really hard for me. I'm, I'll, I'll screw it up. I'll mess it up. I guarantee if anybody could mess up the gospel presentation, it would be me. That's what you're thinking. I'm too quiet. I'm too introverted. Look, nobody's more introverted than me. And yet I must prioritize these things because it's indicative of my growth as a Christian. It's imperative based upon the commission that's been given to each one of us. So how do we do this? 
How did Peter do it right here? I mean, in, in the book of Acts, he clearly shows us how to do it. Three letters. Maybe you've heard this many times before, but let's reiterate it again today. How do you share the gospel with somebody else? It's easy as A, B, C. A is this. The person that you're speaking to must admit that they're a sinner. Admit that they're a sinner. If they don't do this, then they're not ready for the gospel. Then they want a Jesus who's Santa Claus. They want a Jesus who will help them feel better. They want a Joel Osteen's Jesus. If, if they really want to be saved according to the scriptures, they must A, admit that they're a sinner. This is the hardest part. I'm going to give you this. This is the hardest part of the gospel presentation. This is where I believe building a relationship first helps to bear the weight of the gospel. And one of the easiest ways to get somebody to admit that they're a sinner is by telling your sin story as well. And I don't mean you need to be you know, going into detail and telling about every illicit thing you did as a 21-year-old. You don't need to do that. But simply talking about the fact that you, in your previous life, before you met Christ, came to the point where you realized you were a utter disappointment to God based upon His standards. You could not meet God's standards of perfection, which qualifies you as a sinner. And even talk about the effects that sin has in a person's life. Now, why is sin and admitting sin so important? Peter, they said, they cried out to Peter, right? They said, what do we do, brothers? What do we do? And what's the first thing Peter said to them? Repent. Repent. A person, a person comes to the point where they, God opens their eyes and they look at their disgusting past and they look at their disgusting life and how it's marred in the blackness of sin. And they, they cry out and they say, what do I do now? Repent. Which means simply to turn. Turn from sin and turn to God. B, believe on the name Jesus for salvation. When a person cries out and they say, what do I do? You repent of your sin. And I want to turn from my sin. Who do I turn to? You turn to Christ. Jesus died for your sins in order that He might take your sins and the judgment of your sin upon Himself. C, confess Him as Lord and Savior. If I, I tell you, folks, it's not rocket science. If we just do the three letters, you'll be amazed. You'll be amazed at what God can do. We think we need to have it all figured out, and then maybe God can use us. We need to be perfect at it before God can use us. Not true. I have muttered and mumbled and stumbled and fallen through so many gospel presentations and lo and behold, at the end of it, the person was ready and willing and excited about accepting Christ. I tell you, I screwed him up so bad sometimes, I don't even know if I mentioned the name Jesus once. And yet, people were, God had tenderized and prepared a person's heart to the point where they were ready. But for some reason, in His wisdom, God has chosen to use this church, us, fallen, broken, messed up, screwy people, to be the tool to take the gospel to the world. There are people out there, you don't think so, because it seems like the world's so hard and callous, there are people out there that are ready to hear the gospel message. They just need somebody to bring it to them. Now, 
When we say confess him as Lord and Savior, just a little side note here. What did Peter say? Repent, therefore, and be baptized. Now, the common mistake here is to say that baptism is necessary for salvation. No, baptism was so closely tied to a person's heart that it just made sense that when you repented of your sin, turned to Christ for salvation, you would be baptized. Why? Because baptism was the public profession of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It's why... (laughs) It was so foreign that a person would want Jesus and not want to tell anybody about him. It's ridiculous. And yet, have we not arrived there today? Do we not have like top secret Christians? People who want Jesus, they want the fire insurance, but don't ask me to get in that water. Or don't ask me to tell somebody else about it. Or don't expect me to be at Bible study. Or don't expect me to talk about it publicly. Or my personal favorite, I don't need to be a part of a church to be a Christian. Lie. Absolute lie. Show me in the Scripture anywhere where a person becomes born again and and lives their life disassociated from the body of Christ. It's impossible. This is where baptism and salvation go hand in hand. This is why I'm always leery of one who says they're saved and continues to put off or refuses baptism. You need to be saved now. In this moment, you need to be obedient and confess Him as Lord by being baptized. Are you here and you are sure without a shadow of a doubt that should the Lord return in this moment and you were to face Him and be judged by Him, that your salvation is secure? That when Christ Himself looks in the book of life, that your name is there. Because the only way to know that is that there was an opportunity or a time where you came to Him and you said, I believe in you. I trust in you for salvation. I believe that you took the penalty for my sin, Jesus, because you're the only one who can do it. And baptism doesn't save you, but baptism is the hand and glove part of this thing that says, yeah, I did that. And I want the world to know. Why would you not want the world to know? It's like having the cure for cancer and sticking it under the cushion of your mattress. I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond to that at the end of this sermon. Third goal for us this year is this. It gets harder. Give faithfully and courageously. Know Him better and live it out. Ingest or um, share the good news personally. And third goal, give faithfully and courageously. From the very beginning, the members of Christ's church didn't view their treasures as their own. I don't know if you caught that. He said they had all things in common. Tim touched on this last week. Koine. Koine means common. They had all things in common. Everything belonged to one another. Was this communism in the early church? No. Because they kept it. I mean, like it was theirs. And then they gave as there was need, it says. In the Gospels, Jesus teaches us that, I just read this this morning in my quiet time, Matthew chapter 6, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
You can tell a lot about a person's priorities by where they invest their time, where they invest their talent, and where they invest their treasures. In the New Testament, we see various purposes for giving in the church. Here's the deal. The people who know somewhat of the Scriptures, enough to be dangerous, usually will say this. Well, giving and tithing was an Old Testament practice. It's not dictated upon us in the New Testament. Right? So do we say the same thing about the Ten Commandments? They were just an Old Testament thing. We don't need to do those anymore in the New Testament. I can kill any person, innocent person I want. There are some things that God put in place that just make good sense for profitable living and for kingdom impact. We see here in Acts chapter 2 that the main reason the church initially were givers was to care for the needs of others. Has that changed in the church today? No. If you look at the church budget that you all adopted, I think there's a $4,000 line item for benevolence. We don't always, you know, who that receives help wants the pastor to get up in front of the church and say, hey, just so everybody knows, praise God, we gave financial help to XYZ. We don't do that because it's not good practice. But you need to know as a church, like every year, thousands of dollars are given to help people who have a need. Mostly people from within our congregation. They're two months behind on an electric bill. They need help with the rent. Somebody lost a job. They're having a hard time transitioning from finding it, losing a job to finding a job. We do those things every year. Why? Because people give. Because they tithe. And then some of you all, I know, I know the stories, I hear them. Some of you all give above and beyond. You know of somebody who has a need. And in addition to the offerings that you bring to the storehouse, you reach into your own pocket again and you give to help somebody else. On the down low, quiet, not so everybody else has to know, but just so a need can be met. That's what the early church was doing. But we also know through the Apostle Paul and his epistles, that starting missions and the evangelistic work of sharing Christ was another reason that the church gave. He commends the church of Philippi for this in chapter 4. He said to them, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians, you yourselves know that in the beginning of the Gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruits that increase to your credit. I've received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory and forever and ever. Amen. What Paul's saying here is here you have an itinerant missionary evangelist. And it was the church that had received funds in Philippi that chose to send him those resources. Do we do this as a church today? Nancy, do we do this as a church today? Do we receive funds in the offering plate and through special offerings and then disperse those funds to missionaries and evangelists worldwide? Absolutely. Every year. A massive amount of our budget goes towards doing that. 
There's a church meeting in downtown Harrisburg this morning that is a beneficiary of those resources. They're meeting because people gave faithfully as a part of this congregation. So they gave to care for the needs of others. We give for starting missions and sharing Christ. And on a personal note, the Scripture is replete with this as well. The church gives to support pastors as they lead and proclaim the gospel truth. I don't necessarily like to talk about this, but it's in God's Word, so I will. We see first in in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 13 and 14, Paul said this, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And then a little bit later in 1 Timothy 5, he went on to say, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. I have friends who have shared horror stories about, I'm so blessed in this church because you all care for your pastor. I have friends who have told me that their church feels that it's their responsibility to keep their pastor humble through his pay. He's most effective for the gospel ministry if he learns to go without. A sad statement on that congregation. I don't believe God honors that at all. It says he's worthy of double honor. My other favorite one is, well, pastor, you... You certainly don't need to make any more than the, the lowest pay in our congregation. Why should a pastor make more than what um, you know Joe makes at McDonald's? I think it's unbiblical to adopt such an attitude. Why does this storehouse exist? Because in God's economy, we are the only ordained institution that Jesus Christ has given in the New Testament age. Do you know that? God, you will not see in Scripture a campus crusade for Christ. You won't see a crisis pregnancy center. You won't see a campus ministry or a a inner city urban ministry. All you see is the church. The church is the centerpiece. The church is the primary place where resources come in order that uh, ministries may be enhanced and furthered and kingdom work may be initiated. It's churches that ordain pastors and preachers, evangelists. It's churches that send missionaries. No other ministry does this. It's churches that have been entrusted with the gospel. Remember when Peter confessed Christ in um, Caesarea? And when he did that, Jesus commended him. And what did he say to him? He said that, Against this, the, the, meaning the church, the gates of Hades, all, all the keys to heaven and earth have been given to the church. And against it, the gates of hell will not prevail. Now what I love about that is, we think of the church on the defensive, right? But yet what Christ said was, we're on the offensive. The church has been given the keys to heaven and earth, and the gates of hell cannot stand against it. When I was in Caesarea last year, uh, it was a place of pagan worship, and it was a, 
uh, a big open area that went down deep into the uh, rocky crevasse of a, the side of a hill. And the pagans used to worship there because they believed that it was the entryway, the gate to the river Styx. The river Styx, if you know anything about ancient mythology, you had to cross the river Styx to get to Hades, the afterlife. So they would worship at this place. It was at that place that Peter confessed Christ as the Messiah. And it was at that place that Jesus, probably pointing to that area of worship where they thought that the gates of hell stood, Jesus said, based upon what you just confessed, Peter, understand this, it is the gates of hell that will never be able to stand against my church. And yet we shoot ourselves in the foot when we think that this happens without any part of our own resourcing. To my family, the greatest blessing is when God allows us to give in order to see Him do some amazing work in the kingdom. I can't go and support a missionary personally in um, northern Africa where Islam is growing at a rapid rate. And yet there are men and women that are choosing to go there every single day. God's calling them out to be missionaries. You're not probably not going to go. So why do we give? We give so that we can turn around as a church and support those missionaries, missionaries just like Paul. In the Old Testament, God followers were encouraged by God to bring money to the storehouse. And we see this similarly in the New Testament as Ananias and Sapphira brought their gifts and they laid them at the apostles' feet. Local churches gathered resources and they gave gifts to missionaries. And the church, the church is Christ's New Testament body, given the keys to the kingdom, ordained to administer the gospel. The tithe, here's the deal where people get confused. They say, oh, well, the tithe, that's an Old Testament law thing. That's not something we do in the New Testament. Is it? I say it all the time. That's where we start as a family with the tithe. Why? Well, have things changed since the Old Testament? I mean, like, does God not, did he use the resources of people in the Old Testament, but he doesn't need them anymore in the New Testament? He doesn't want to use them anymore in the New Testament? The tithe was instituted in the Old Testament, by the way, before the law was even given. Abraham. After the battle, Abraham met Melchizedek, the king of Salem, and he gave an offering to the Lord there. And it was a tithe. He gave a tenth of everything that the Lord had given him. If you want to get really technical, you want to think you have it easy now, listen to this. Did you know that during the Old Testament, there wasn't just one tithe, and there wasn't two, there was three. You gave a tenth of your income for the Levitical tithe, you gave a tenth for the temple tithe, and you gave a tenth for the charitable tithe. 30% of your income, right off the top. And we're not even talking about special special feasts and offerings that they would have. On top of that, we're not talking about the taxes that the Romans would levy upon people to care for the temple. So the question is this, did Christ abolish the tithe or did he give us cheerful reason to entrust even more to him out of thanksgiving? My question is never, how can I give less or how can we manage just at 10%? But the question we ask is, what can we do above and beyond 10%? And maybe one of those goals for you as an individual is maybe you are a tither. Maybe this is the year where you say, how can we give 1% more? How can we give 2% more? I think the days of feeling bad about talking about giving in church need to be gone. 
because the number of evangelical conservative churches that are doing the gospel work is diminishing in, in the world today, which means that those churches like our own that are serious about, about the Bible and about the gospel ministry, we have to also be serious about what we give. God doesn't need your money, by the way. But if you refuse to share the resources that he's given to you as a part of the gospel work, you are not only being disobedient, but you're missing out on the greatest, one of the greatest blessings of your life. And I'll say one other thing about this. Just make sure that, I hear this one all the time too, I anger everybody this morning. I, I, well, I give some to the church, but I give to here and to this and to this and to this and to this. Well, I'm glad you give to this and this and this and this. Just make sure that what you give to the church is what God has laid upon your heart and what's required for the church to be what the church needs to be. If you're giving $120 a month over here to Joe and Susie missionaries to Istanbul and you know, you're giving $200 a month over here to uh, this particular uh, local community need, and you're, and you're giving um, you know, $75 a month to your church, I would say that's disobedience. I think the church needs to be the primary recipient of your offerings and your gifts, biblically speaking. And I know a lot of you who give faithfully to the church and then sacrificially give of offerings to the church and to other ministries. And that's great. I, I, we do that from time to time. Um, just make sure the church is the primary recipient of your offerings and the primary place in which ministry, gospel ministry, is, is being launched from. Goal number four. You get off giving now. You can breathe just a little bit. Goal number four. What I see in the early church here and a good goal for us this year is to carry one another. Carry one another. I think Tim touched on this a bit last week. We see from this short text in Acts that even early on, these people loved one another so deeply and they grew in such an affinity with one another and towards each other that they would do whatever was necessary um, to care. And there are some, some biblical steps to how this happens, but just to, again, reiterate what Tim mentioned last week, we, in order to care for one another, we must actually know one another. You have to actually know one another. You see my buddy Ron nodding his head over there. Ron and I had a great time this year deer hunting. Did we kill anything, Ron? No. Did we, did we scare anything? Not really. Do we have some good conversations and great time hanging out? Absolutely. Never had the opportunity to do that with Ron before. Um, it was good for me to hear the stories about his family and, and find out more about his son and all the adventures that his son is involved in. And um, I didn't know anything about his boy. And then I had an opportunity to hunt his son's land and to hang out with Ron and hear how we can pray for his son and pray for his family. And um, But we need to prioritize those things among each other. We, we can't care for one another if we don't know what the needs are. So here we go. What are some biblical steps to make this happen? You really want to carry one another? Let's read Galatians 6. Paul gives us sort of an outline here. Galatians 6, 1-5. He said, Brothers, 
If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. What's Paul talking about here? This specific example involves somebody who is struggling, most likely in sin. Sin has negatively impacted a person's life. And Paul is saying, all right, that person who's hurting over here, they've been wounded by sin, the person in the church that's really struggling, it's our job to carry them. Carry them. But in order to carry them, he says the first thing you need to do is you need to actually care. And that's the first point under this, caring. Biblical steps to how this happens, is it first involves caring. Start by asking the question, are you even getting to know and invest in other people? Not seeing them as opponents, not seeing them as malicious individuals, but seeing them for who they are. Sinful people just like you and I, who have struggles in their life, people who are hurting on the inside, people who sometimes are going to lash out simply because their situation is, is bad. Sometimes people say dumb stuff. You know why? Just because we're dumb. Not because they want to hurt your feelings. Not because they even put much thought into hurting your feelings. Just because they're dumb. I'm dumb. I do it all the time. say dumb stuff all the time. Spend a lot of time making up for dumb stuff that I say. But we have to live in family and community together where, first of all, we actually care enough about people to see beyond that sort of stuff. You know? Is Steve going to fail me sometime? Maybe. I mean, I, I need to live with the presumption that here's a broken man, an individual who's steeped in sin just like I am, but he's living under the redemptive blood of Christ just like I am. And sometimes, you know, ugly things are going to rear their ugly head. And as a believer, as a fellow brother in Christ, we come alongside each other and we care enough to not throw him to the curb, to love one another through it. Which brings us to the second C. First, you have to care about the person. The next thing you have to do is you have to extend courtesy. And what this means is, are you you prepared not only to actually care about them, like concern yourself with what their problems are, but to do something about it? Courtesy is, is doing something for somebody else when they probably don't deserve it or can even help themselves. Helping the little old lady across the street. You recognize her problem. You extend a courtesy by giving her a hand and helping to make sure she gets across the street safely. Same thing in the body of Christ. Are you prepared to minister to people in both the good and the bad? Here's the deal. Sometimes people have bad things or bad, they're struggling in life because of circumstances that are beyond their control. Maybe it's some depression that they're suffering from. Maybe uh, a lost job or uh, lost finances. And we can care in those things. But you know what Paul's talking about here? Sometimes people are in bad situations because they've done dumb, bad things. Are we going to love them through that as well? I'm not talking about the person who refuses to admit it or denies their sin. I'm talking about the person who now is is just reeling in the consequences of their sin and is ready for help. Are we going to be the church family that extends courtesy to that individual? But then Paul gives us one more C here. He says you have to care, you have to extend courtesy, but you have to do it with caution. Caution. This is protecting yourself 
so that as you love people through their sin and their hurt, their hurt and their sin doesn't become your hurt and your sin. Because if, like I said earlier, you know, you either you either become callous to sin or you adopt it as your own. And if we're not careful, we can walk into a relationship with somebody else and in the course of helping somebody else through their own sin, we give Satan a foothold in our own life. And here's the deal. I think one of the areas Paul's talking about here is the feeling good about yourself based upon how bad somebody else's life is. When we help somebody else who's hurting or has made a mistake and they're struggling in their sin and we extend a hand to help them, it's real easy to go, oh, thank you, Lord, I'm not like that person. Which just defeats the whole purpose. Any one of us in this room could sin at any given moment and fall into a level of depravity that the only way we're going to get out of it is if the body of Christ were going to extend a hand to us and love us through it. We're no better than anybody else. So let me close with this. Some questions to consider as we go into the new year. You can write these down if you want. First is, what's my Bible study slash reading plan look like for 2017? I'm done hearing people say, I'm not really a reader. That needs to go away. That argument needs to go away. I'm not really a reader. I don't even care if you get some books on tape. Free books from the library on digital download or whatever it takes. But what are you going to read this year? What's your scripture reading plan? And what is your reading reading plan? Outside of, well, it brings me to another second question. What books are you going to read in 2017 beyond fiction? I'm not talking about, you know, revisiting Little Women again. What are you going to read that's going to profit you? in real life. I've read Little Women. It doesn't profit you in real life. What are those books that... Right now I'm reading um, a book called Design to Lead, uh, which is uh, all about um, the constructs for leaders within the church for effective ministry. Um, I'm reading a book by Paul Washer uh, called The True Gospel Call and Conversion about how as a church we've gotten away from um, what it means to be saved, and we've turned it into walking an aisle and saying a prayer, and it's a rather deep theological, doctrinal sort of book. Um, I'm going through with our ML3 guys. I'm reading again the book by John uh, Maxwell, 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership, uh, and we're also reading the classic by J. Oswald Sanders, Spiritual Leadership. Um, I'm reading a book uh, called The Zookeeper's Wife. I think I mentioned that. It's... Uh, a biblical history book about a woman in the Wars in Warsaw who took uh, uh, Jewish um, persecuted Jews out of the ghetto and hid them in a bombed-out zoo during the duration of World War II. What what are you reading that's making you um, more effective for Christ this year? If you flip over your note sheet, you'll see in the back I gave you a starter list. These are just Honestly, like 60 seconds, books that came off the top of my mind. I mean, I'd give you a million more if you want some other ideas. Like after I made that list, like even this morning when I was looking over my sermon notes, I'm thinking, oh, I should have told him about this or I should have told him about that. 
Next question, what will I do to serve Christ in his body in practical ways? Let me give you an example of this. Our media ministry is wounded. We need more people to help serve. We have guys who are serving sometimes two, three weeks in a row. Uh, we need some people who can push enter. You think, oh, media ministry, that's beyond me. No, everything you need is really already loaded onto the computer, thanks to Sabrina and uh, Rachel when you show up on Sunday morning. You just need to be able to push enter and listen. And, and there's some grace in this ministry as well. Now, nobody wants to be that person, right? Because everything on Sunday morning is up here. So when they're slow on a slide, what's your first thought? You're like, oh, that poor media guy, you know, they fell asleep back there. Everybody's forgiving of the media person. What are you going to do to serve? Maybe you need to step back into the children's ministry rotation now that we have those bright, beautiful, clean rooms. Um, we have a reach team. Maybe you need to be involved in the reach team. How can I challenge myself to advance the kingdom of God through the local church? Here's an important one. Who's sitting in this room right now that I've not taken the time to get to know, and how can I remedy that? Maybe you, maybe you don't hunt and you won't hang out in Ron's deer stand, but maybe you could feed Ron. You eat, don't you, Ron? Yeah? I eat. Uh, I want to be the church that's known for hospitality because out of that comes solid fellowship, which comes accountability and care and courtesy and ministry and love. Lastly, what will I do to ensure that I share the saving message of Christ with at least one person this year? A lot of statistics out there. I'll tell you this. If you share Christ with one person this year, you're one of the few people in the churches today that's sharing Christ with anybody this year. You're well ahead of the curve if you share Christ with just one person this year. Maybe there's that those few people at the coffee shop that you need to get to know a little bit better this year. Maybe there's that gal that's always complaining about her husband on the you know, soccer team. You stand on the sidelines and she just goes on and on and on about her husband all the time, how horrible he is and how their marriage is falling apart. Maybe that's your person that you can get around to sharing Christ with this year. And if you want some other ideas, I'm sure I can share those with you as well. But it all starts with knowing Christ and getting into his word. Have you done that? I'm going to close in prayer and I'm going to invite you to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. Repent, therefore, and be baptized. Maybe you have received Christ as your Savior, but now is the time when you need to be baptized. I know I've got one little girl in this congregation that her mom and dad and I need to schedule a baptism for her. Maybe you could join her in the waters of baptism. I know we have people in here that need to be baptized. Let's go to the Lord and pray.